Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Putang damang sangkang namasami. So, today I'd like to speak about um, habits of mind. And there can be wholesome and unwholesome habits of mind. I'm sure you have noticed that over your lifetime. And... You know, whenever the mind is uh, receiving an, an object through the six senses, which is the, you know, the ear, the eye, the nose, the tongue, the body, or the mind itself, and when it, it receives it with ignorance present in the mind, then, um, you know, defilements, or it's called um, in English, or afflictive emotions it's also called sometimes or I don't have a better word obscurations, obscurations arise in the mind and in the Pali language they are, they are called the kilesas and as soon as those arise you know we cannot any longer perceive uh, phenomena for what they are but we perceive them in a more or less distorted way and, and those kilesas, defilements, uh, in the Pali language, there are, there are three, basically. They are also called sometimes the three roots, or, the th or in Pali language, mula or hetu. And the first one is greed. In Pali it's called lopa. Second one is hatred, dosa, and delusion, moha. So if, you know, if uh, ignorance is present in the mind and... In ignorance, you know, in according to the Buddha's teachings, simply expressed means, you know, not understanding uh, the Four Noble Truths, basically how to be with uh, perception, kind of trying to fiddle with, with the perception in, in some way, in terms of, you know, wanting it to stay as it is and not change wanting more of it or not wanting it or not, not being clear about what one wants you know, kind of circling around and all three uh, of those defiled states of mind they uh, you know, distort our experience and you know, if we are not aware of that because as soon as awareness arises in the mind mindfulness informed by wisdom, as soon as that arises in the mind, uh, you know, defilement can't be present at the same time. So, any moment, you know, there is mindfulness in the mind, then defilements can't be there at the same time. But if there's no mindfulness, because, you know, we have never heard of it, or the power of mind is not strong enough, then... If we repeat this arising of kilesa, of afflictive emotions, if it's repeated again and again and again, then we create certain habits of mind. They are strengthening, you know, through every repetition, becomes stronger. 
and it can be compared like you know with a with a groove or with a rut which is created through the repetition. And then certain tendencies are laid down in the mind. And in a Pali language they're called anusaya. If they are unwholesome tendencies, you know, which come from the repetitive enacting of greed, hatred and delusion, then anusayas arise with which are called latent tendencies of mind. And, uh, and we can, you know, we can go through a long time, you know, without some of those latent tendencies being triggered, because they get only there laying in the unconscious level of the mind. And you know, we can have a, you know, very good meditation, or can feel very, very peaceful, and then cert- suddenly, you know, a certain object arises at the sense doors. And then these latent tendencies gets gets triggered and very powerfully, you know, kind of can flare up and can completely overwhelm us if our mindfulness isn't really sharp enough. So, you know, those those unwholesome tendencies, they can be, you know, if they are very, very, very deeply ingrained, you know, they can be compared to a, uh, a rut or a groove chiseled in rock. It's very difficult, you know, to work out of this again. If it's just like, you know, not very deep, we can compare it with like, you know, taking a finger and going through the sand. If there's a bit of water or wind coming, it's it's soon evened out again. Or even like just drawing on water with a with a finger, it's very quickly it disappears again. So, it's different intensities. Of, of Anusaya. And for example, you know, the whole uh, advertisement world is completely kind of uh, make, makes it a science, you know, to understand how this, how this Anusaya work for people. And they have developed, I think, great, uh, you know, great um, tricks to, to catch people in that way. And people are not even aware of it, you know. Some of the you know of this information is, is is communicated in a way that the conscious mind isn't even even aware of it. But this is why it's so powerful. So and then there's also you know we can also create wholesome tendencies in our mind and they are called in the Pali language the parameters. And those wholesome tendencies, the ten parameters, they are actually you know this is what we are cultivating in the Buddhist practice. And just to remind us what the ten parameters are, because there's such a long list, I have to write it down. The first one is dana parameter, generosity. Then sila is, is ethics, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, Resolution, loving kindness, and equanimity. Those, those ten, they can also be strengthened through repetition, through conscious, you know, cultivating them in in our own uh, daily lives, and you know, by acting on those. Even sometimes it's difficult, but the more often you know we enact it, the easier it becomes because we are also creating those ruts, but they are wholesome ones. And, and the whole, you know, 
what's called like the holy life in the scriptures is all about cultivating those ten paramitas. And like a, a Buddha, a fully enlightened Buddha, is 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 a, a human being who has basically totally perfected all of those ten paramitas. And somebody you know, has perfected the unwholesome tendencies. The Anusayas is is somebody who is you know uh, as far away from Buddhahood as as some of us. And you know, and the unwholesome tendencies of uh, of greed. There is in the Pali language is called raga or lust. Then the unwholesome tendencies of hatred is called grudge or patika. An unwholesome tendency of delusion is called avicca or, or ignorance. So you know the, the basically the holy life is all about trying to undo the unwholesome ones and trying to secure the wholesome ones more and more in our lives. And I think you've probably heard about the you know the word uh, brain plasticity, you know, which is like a word many people speaking about nowadays because you know by now scientists have been able to really prove you know that um, a brain is is not just like we are not born with the brain and then it's just staying the same until we die but the brain is constantly changing depending on you know how we are using it for example you know a, a taxi driver in london who has to remember tons and tons and tons of streets and roads and you know, funny uh, kind of um, details of, of a huge city. If somebody, you know, does that kind of work for a certain amount of years, scientists can very clearly see, you know, which part of the brain is, is just like becoming very, very strong developed. Or somebody who is a real uh, virtuoso, you know, on an instrument or really extremely skilled in a sport or in a craft. It can all be traced back you know, in, into the, you know, physical appearance of the brain. So, you know, there is not a single kind of uh, trait in the mind which cannot be changed because it all has been, you know, created through conditioning and can be deconditioned. And there have been lots of, uh, you know, um, investigations over the uh, over the last years in terms of how meditation can influence the mind, because for a long time it was kind of doubted, you know, that uh, meditation is really something which can be really, you know, pinned down scientifically. It was thought it is just like, you know, more or less like wishful thinking and, and can't really be measured to have real results. But it has been very much. Uh, defeated, you know, over the last years. And, and I have brought something I'd like to read about from this book here from Mathieu Ricard, who has been a, a, a cellular, uh, had a career in cellular genetics before he became a, a Buddhist monk. And he wrote this book. He also wrote the book about happiness, which was one of the bestsellers over the last years. So he's a, he's a monk in the Tibetan tradition. And what he's, he writes here, he says, scientific investigations have shown 
that you do not have to be a highly trained meditator to benefit from the effects of meditation. Even 20 minutes of daily practice can contribute significantly to the reduction of stress, whose harmful effects on health are well established. And he says, you know, that people who meditate for 30 minutes a day significantly strengthen their immune systems, and it reinforces positive emotions, it reinforces the faculty of attention, reduces arterial pressure in those suffering from high blood pressure, and accelerates healing of certain skin diseases. To what, ex to what extent we can train our mind to work in a constructive manner, for example, by replacing obsession with contentment, agitation with calmness, or hatred with kindness? Twenty years ago, it was almost universally accepted by neuroscientists that the brain contained all its neurons at birth and that their number did not change in adult life. We now know that new neurons are produced up to until the moment of death. Moreover, scientists speak of neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to continually change its structure and function in response to new experiences so that a particular training such as learning a musical instrument or a sport can bring significant and lasting functional and structural changes in the brain. Mindfulness, altruism and other basic human qualities can be cultivated in the same way. In general, if we engage repeatedly in a new activity or train in a new skill, modifications in the neural system of the brain can be observed within a month. It is essential, therefore, to meditate regularly. And he also says, one of the great tragedies of our time is that, that we significantly underestimate our capacity for change. Because, you know, we, we, we tend to only kind of um, judge according to how it feels. And, you know, feelings, they can be profoundly... Um, Deluding, you know, if we, if we just go with the power of the feeling, if we don't try to, uh, you know, stay with that feeling and hold it, you know, in awareness, then if we just believe the the story of the feeling, then we 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 just don't have enough um, decisiveness, you know, or we we don't have have enough resolution to to be able to to not act on it. And, you know, why is it so difficult? It is because of the, the third element, which I want to mention. You know, so it starts with the, the afflictive emotion of kilesa, which is, which is in the mind. As soon, you know, as, as an object is perceived by the mind through ignorance, then, then this defilement arises. And then if it arises repeatedly, then these rats are laid down in the mind, these habits. And then, you know, if these habits become very strong, then the pressure, you know, to act on that habit becomes ever stronger. And that's called, in the, in the scriptures, that's called the asavas. Or, you know, sometimes it's translated as outflows, sometimes it's translated as influxes, or taints also. And, you know, we can say, you know, if you... You know, picture that the unconscious mind would be like a big jar of water. 
and if there is a certain amount of you know underlying tendencies in the mind they can be compared to the water in the jar if there's a, a lot of underlying tendencies then there's a lot of water in the jar and the pressure of that water becomes very strong and if there's any crack anywhere in that jar a little hole or something the pressure of the water presses the water out through those cracks and this is the asava so when then you know when then a a mind object or as in any object arises like you know you go through the street you don't even think about eating or something because you have actually had enough and suddenly there's like a picture of McDonald's or whatever you know and if there if if you have had lots of those and you have have been bombarded by lots of uh, advertisement that it really makes you happy and so on and so forth then it you know through the pressure of this uh, meeting together of, of all of those elements, suddenly you feel you need to have this. And if we are not, you know, if we have never looked at how the mind works, it's very easy to believe it because the feeling is so convincing. So there's this, this kind of train of events, you know, there's a, a defilement and then there's a, a habit which is created through the repetition of acting on it and then you know those this very strong pressure arises this very strong this outflows or asavas and actually you know the whole um, reason for practice is actually to to end these asavas you know to end the outflows by uprooting and seeing through and, and cutting off at the root these underlying tendencies. And, you know, in, in the scriptures it's, it's, it's often expressed that, you know, that we are yoked to the wheel of birth and death, to samsara, by these asavas, you know, by the power of these outflows, which are, you know, the which are created to a constant repetition of, of unwholesome tendencies. And, and therefore, you know, quite often the suttas end with, with that sentence, which, is, which in Pali is asavehi chitani vimuchim sutti. And in English that means the hearts of the monks were freed from the asava, from the taints, through clinging no more. So that means, you know, they have heard a certain sermon of the Buddha and because they so deeply understood it, at that point, you know, the underlying tendencies were cut off at the root and then there were no more asavas. So basically, if you want to, you know, put it in a nutshell, what is the kind of, why we are doing this, why we are meditating, it's all about that, you know, uh, uprooting the underlying tendencies and doing away with these outflows forever, if possible, you know. And if there's no more underlying tendencies, then there's no more outflows. And then, you know, there is uh, a life which is uh, free from from unwholesome or afflictive emotions. Kilesas will still arise because, you know, we do have a body and the body needs to eat and needs, needs you know, protection. But 
because there's no underlying tendencies and there's no more outflows, those chilesas can be just, you know, recognized with mindfulness and for what they are, you know, yeah, I feel hungry and then you just go and eat something. But there's no, you know, there's no greed there in the sense of uh, habitual relating to when we see the food. We're just eating it because, you know, we need it in order to live. And, you know, and the, the crucial kind of element which, you know, is, is there to, to do this work is, is, of course, you know, sati, from our mindfulness. And also there's also other skillful means, you know, which can support us in, in working with those underlying tendencies. And one very important one is ethics or sila. But if it's not informed with wisdom, then it's not kind of powerful enough because then it just becomes like a, a, a holding on to, to rites and rituals, which is like another, you know, unwholesome um, tendency which we should not cultivate. So, you know, keeping, keeping to certain rules, if it's not done, you know, with wisdom, which means, you know, for example, if you want to take something and you, you're just not taking it because you're afraid you, uh, you know, somebody will, will find out and uh, will beat you up or something, that's really not good enough to free you from ignorance. But if, if it's coming from having observed, you know, uh, for example, you know, what, what repercussions it can have if you take something which is not given, if you can see it in a whole bigger context and also the remorse it brings up, the, you know, how much it, it doesn't actually bring you what you think, you know, what, what an uninstructed mind would think it does. If, if it is informed in that way, if it's informed by wisdom, then it, uh, it does lead, you know, to uh, deconditioning and decreasing of the unwholesome underlying tendencies. But if it's just coming from, uh, you know, forcing yourself not to do something because um, you know, of, of, of just blindly believing that's not good enough. Even it can, you know, it can help to keep us out of mischief, but it's not informed by wisdom. And, you know, there's one sutta in, in the Machima Nikaya which speaks uh, about, you know, about the asavas, about the outflows. And, and it suggests, you know, different ways how we can, how we can deal with them. And the, the first of the asavas is, uh, is related to, to sense desire. It's called kama asava. The second one is, um, is related to, you know, wanting to be different than as one is now, it's related to, uh, you know, wanting to have a different status, wanting to have different qualities. It's called Bhavasava. And the third one is ignorance, Avicca Asava. And in this Sutta, 
is is uh, this is in the Machima Nikaya, which is one of the four basic books in the you know of the suttas, the Machima Nikaya number two, and it speaks of of um, seven different skillful means. You know how we can deal with uh, asavas or outflows. And the first is you know to attend when they are present to attend to them with um, with with, with uh, mindfulness you know not by kind of uh, you know trying to because if we don't have you know enough uh, capacity to tolerate the the unpleasant feeling which that brings you know if there is a very strong asava present and we we decide not to act on it and we decide to be with it with mindfulness can feel extremely unpleasant so this is, you know, if people, for example, want to stop smoking, there, there's, there's certain kind of medicines you can take nowadays because people just don't have enough resilience to, to bear that feeling, you know, or stop drinking or any, any kind of drugs. You know, often, you know, people don't have enough power of mindfulness that they can just bear the feeling, so they need to have, like, another in between step and that's that's definitely a good thing you know and for example you know uh, you know to, to live live uh, a monastic life is is also like a very you know powerful support to be able to to stay to stay conscious and to stay uh, Centered, you know, when when the asavas are running really, really powerfully, because one is reminded, you know, through through the daily routine and through through the environment, through the uh, spiritual friends, and through you know many many things we do every day, we remind ourselves of our kind of commitment to that, and then you know, to breaking some of those. Uh, commitments can have kind of big repercussions, so that can, you know, keep oneself in check. The second one is, is uh, restraint. You know, just to, you know, if one knows that certain areas, one is very vulnerable. For example, you know, if people want to stop drinking, uh, you know, some of them if they have a very, very strong habit, they can't even, like, have a sip or something. If they have one sip, off they go, they can't control it anymore. So there can be, you know, like a real, very, very strong restraint. We can make a determination and then just not, you know, not, um, not take a risk, basically, by not going near it for as long as it's needed, you know, until the power of this asava is decreased to a certain extent so that we have enough strength, we can be with it. And I've heard, you know, some people who have been drinking, you know, regularly, they maybe for a whole lifetime, they can never again drink even a sip of alcohol because they are too vulnerable to, for this underlying tendency to explode into the mind again, you know, and completely overwhelm them. That's one. And the third one is to use, uh, you know, to use the requisites 
which is in, in a monastic, this is a, a sutta, you know, which was been um, t- taught to monks. So, but we can translate it, you know, for for you know, lay people's lives very easily as well. You know, to use the requisites only for for protecting and upholding the body and the mind in a healthy way. You know, not overindulging in in material goods, so to say. You know, and exploiting. Uh, the planet and exploiting other people in order to have the best of everything, you know. Then the next one, and please don't forget that this is written for monastics, but I think it's interesting just to hear it. Next one is enduring, you know, enduring um, heat and cold and flies and mosquitoes and creeping things, as it said, you mm-hmm. know, and enduring uh, difficult circumstances just to train oneself you know to to be able to uh, you know have a certain tolerance for for difficulties it's it's a it's a powerful um, strength one can develop you know not not have to always have it my way necessarily but being able to um, you know keep uh, centered Next one is to avoid unnecessary dangers. And in the scriptures it's written, you know, wild dogs and wild elephants and cesspits and wild rivers and snakes and all kinds of things. So in in modern life it probably means, you know, just, you know, be careful when you go over the, over the road or don't drive crazily fast or, you know, just be um, kind of reasonable. Another way how we how we live. And the next one is removing. So you know, you know if any unwholesome you know thoughts uh, arise in the mind, which might you know drag us into doing something we later regret, removing them with either you know holding them. In mindfulness and you know and through that mindfulness not being carried away by it or even you know if they're very powerful to just apply some anti-thoughts you know so we don't do anything which we later regret so if there's maybe some powerful anger arising you know just before we we do something we later regret maybe just quickly you know leave the scene or Start or try to think about something else. If it's really very powerful and you're afraid, you can't, uh, you know, contain it. And the last one is uh, developing. And developing what's called the, you know, developing the mind by by practicing. What I was just speaking before here when I was reading out that passage of the book. You know, developing skillful habits, and as as Matyarika said in that book, you can even you know uh, physically uh, trace that back within a month in the brain. So this is amazing, you know. So if we only go according to how we feel, we it would be hard to believe, you know. But if you you know, try it out in your own experience. You can, you can, you can find out for yourself. And then, you know, 
we tend to develop faith in the practice and we, we tend to see, you know, that there's much better, you know, fruits we can have than just acting on impulse and eating what we want or, you know, saying what we want or buying what we want, to just hold back and reflect. And then we can see, you know, that, that certain tendencies which we had maybe a year ago or 10 years ago, they can be completely changed. And I have definitely seen that in my own life and have been very surprised, you know, with some uh, tendencies where I didn't think it would so quickly change, you know. And other tendencies where I wouldn't have thought it would take so long. <laughs> I must say that also exists. But there's definitely a, a, a great plasticity there, you know, a great uh, opportunity for us to have a choice and enact that choice. And, you know, that's, that's really what the whole practice is all about. And, you know, the word, the Pali word for, for practice is, is called bhavana, means cultivation. And in Tibetan, it's interesting, it's called gom, which means to become familiar with. So it's all about, you know, really kind of clearly looking at, at the workings of the mind. And through that very clear looking, you know, get to know it really deeply. And... And then, you know, more and more uh, capacity to, to choose how we want to respond. And you know, until recently, it wasn't so clearly uh, pointed out by, by science that this is really possible. So, and now even, you know, we do have this, this uh, other proof, you know, where we can really see it on, uh, on measuring equipment that this is possible. So I think that should be, you know, a great impetus for us to, to really uh, have more trust that this is, is possible. And I wonder if you have any comments or, or questions on this. Yeah, I'd be happy to try to say something more on it. Can you say a little bit more about how we develop wisdom? How we develop wisdom? Through applying you know, mindfulness. Yeah, and and or awareness, you know, mm-hmm. and you know this is the point, you know, to remember when when something happens, you know, to 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 not react, but to bring mindfulness to it. This is the point, you know. This is where the difficulty lies, you know, and which can only be um, improved through practicing. And this is why, you know, we, sati or mindfulness or awareness alone is not enough. In the, it's called satipanya, you know, mindfulness with wisdom. Or sometimes it's also called sati sampachanya, which is called like mindfulness in action. Because, you know, we can have wisdom, but if it, if it isn't available in the moment when we need it, it's not, 
it's not very much worth something, you know. Mm-hmm. And and the basic, you know, the basic definition what wisdom is 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 the understanding of of uh, of emptiness, you know. And satipanya, in in a definition means you know that we know that everything is empty of inherent existence. And satisampachanya means that this is empty of inherent existence, you know, in, in, in the moment when you need it, you know. And, and that, you know, that power to recall, you know, sati is basically what is responsible, you know, for, for producing wisdom, because first you have to see things as they really are in order for wisdom to arise. But then it's also responsible for bringing it to where you need it, you know. And then if you bring it to where, where, where you need it, then it gets strengthened through, you know, through adding more and more to it. So, one has to just start and not stop, you know. And then if, if sati, if mindfulness is really powerful, then it can even, you know, go so, uh, so strong that it cuts off these underlying tendencies at the root. And this... You know, this is what's called like a path moment. This is when there's a real deep insight where where some of these tendencies are cut away forever. And this is in the scriptures, it's called the four stages of, of enlightenment. So if we just have a normal insight, you know, like which is not cutting off the anusaya at the root, then a, a normal insight would come com- be comprised of, you know, seeing the first of the two noble truths, seeing that, you know, this is suffering and seeing, you know, it comes from clinging. But if there is a path moment, you know, one which is really cutting off at the roots, sees all the four truths at the same time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't only see that there is suffering and, there, and the origin of suffering is clinging, it also sees, you know, that realization of letting go and and the path to it. So this is a much deeper seeing. And we never know when that happens, but it it depends you know, on how much wisdom is accumulated through the application of sati. You know, it's like any moment you you apply, you know, awareness or mindfulness, a certain amount of wisdom is extracted out of experience. And it's all non-conceptual. And then, you know, it's kind of stored away somewhere. And then if it gains a certain momentum, we never know when that's going to be. It shifts into into an insight. You know, if it's, it, and sometimes it shifts into this very deep insight, like which is called a path moment, which cuts forever, you know, that off what's called like the ten fetters in the scriptures, which bind us, you know, to the wheel of samsara. Or, you know, another way of speaking of it is, is like the asava, the outflows, which yoke us to the wheel of samsara. So, you know, it, it might sound all a bit complicated, but actually... It isn't complicated, but it's not easy to do either. 
maybe I misheard you, but you said when you bring mindfulness, the kalesas can't exist. When, when we bring mindfulness? The kalesas can't exist. At the same time, no. Then how do you study the kalesa? Yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's in terms of mind moment, you know. You can't have a moment where there is greed and at the same time there's mindfulness, but you can have one moment greed, one moment mindfulness, one moment greed, one moment mindfulness. You know, and, and to, the, to our experience, it is like we're having it at the same time because those mountain moments are very fast, you know. But every time, you know, when we bring mindfulness, it's like we cut it and we cut and we cut and we cut and we cut that momentum, you know, and cut it ever more. And so every every single cut with mindfulness, you know, weakens it at a very, very tiny amount, you know. Whereas, you know, before we have been starting to practice, we never cut, cut it. So that flow is very, very powerful, you know. Yeah. So it's basically, you know, like cutting up the ego in ever smaller bits, you know. And then, to our surprise, you know, that uh, it's, not, it's not weakening, you know, our life. It's, it's making it much better. But in the beginning, you know, it, it doesn't feel like this because of the asava. So next time, you know, you feel those outflows, you just, oh, this is the asavas. Don't allow yourself to be fooled, you know, by the information they give. Because that is just, uh, it's very counterproductive, you know. Because they are non they need always more. They don't, they're never, they're never finished. They're never satisfied. They just get stronger. This is why, you know, there is no way that we can ever come to an end with, uh, with following desire. The only end, you know, is by cutting off desire at the root. But, you know, of course, you know, um, the advertisement, um, Scientists don't tell you that because you can't make any much money with that. But as I hope, you know, that this information will get through sooner or later because otherwise we wipe ourselves off the planet because there's not enough uh, resources here for, you know, uh, allowing ourselves to be, you know, kind of completely ruled by the Asava. We have to kind of get a handle on this now, really. It's already almost too late, many people think, but I, I won't stop trying either because I think I, who knows you know, what effect it would have on, on the universe, you know, if, if enough people on this planet will all stop their asavas by practicing really uh, fully. So we just have to face the unpleasant feeling of the asavas, you know, when they are really kind of triggered. That's the, that's the um, 
key, you know, but not facing them just, you know, with gritting our teeth and keeping to the rules because we have been, otherwise we go to prison or something. Mm-hmm. That's also helpful, you know, but what's most important to develop wisdom is to face it, you know, to face it with, with mindfulness and with awareness because otherwise um, it's just, a, you know, repression or suppression and that's it's better than acting on it but it's not gonna do the job of uh, you know undercutting the anosias and ending the asavas yeah so there's one suit that I'm not remembering it where the Buddha's talking about doing all these things but he goes and then if you can't do it you beat down grit your teeth mm-hmm. Or yes. Yeah. This is the dealing with ans- two kinds of thoughts. Yeah. I think it, yeah, it's called two kinds of thoughts. The sutta is called two kinds of thoughts. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's still a good thing, you know, because you don't. I mean, that's the last, the last resort, you know, because if you exactly know that this is a. a uh, very unwholesome. Bye bye, Mo. If you know that's a very unwholesome thing to do, mm-hmm. you know, and if if you almost, you know, on the verge of doing it, then it's certainly better, you know, to suppress it than than to do something you later regret. Yeah. And then you know, and then maybe for, for then you go and then you maybe go to your cushion and investigate, you know. And bring mindfulness to it, and 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 you know, and and kind of really go into the depths of it. But maybe you know, I, I can I can imagine that with anger, for example, you know, if you are let's say you're in a, in a in a group of people, and then something is said, or somebody you know enters that group and and challenges you so much that you you know you know you wouldn't be able now to speak with equanimity. What you, you can hardly manage more than to just quickly leave the room. It's 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 a good thing, you know. Yeah, I guess the dichotomy for myself on that is is I do that, but then if I'm if I'm willing, the feeling of it is so suffering. It's like you know to have to beat down and clench a fist, and it's like, ee. <laughs> That's like causing myself really a lot of pain, and I don't want to do that, you know. So, kind of in my mind, it, it has this dichotomy about it's like I see it, but it's so hard for me to want to grasp that part because it feels so against. I'm creating my own another level of suffering for myself. Yeah, like, but have you ever have you ever been, you know, acting on anger and had any good results of it? I've never had. Because the thing is, then you have to compare. You know what suffering is is what suffering is is less. You know the gritting your teeth, or the the all of the suffering of the remorse when you have acted on anger. You have to just weigh it up. Yeah. No. I. um, I I guess with kind of happens more in my practice and I become just more aware of my body that it's like I don't want to ever have to go to that point where I have to grit and bear down mm-hmm. on it because mm-hmm. that 
to me is, is so suffering too, mm-hmm. and it almost one makes me okay catch it before you get mm-hmm. there, Rick. Figure mm-hmm. it out before you have mm-hmm. to grit your teeth. Yeah, if you can. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. for me, so then I'm saving myself and everybody else a little bit mm-hmm. less pain. But I think you know that probably that one instruction isn't so much for people like who already uh, already practicing for quite some time, you know. Yeah. The last resort, isn't it? Yeah, it's really the last resort, you know. I have one other question because here's just something, and, and this is—I've been thinking about how I, I, my perception of what happens as we're practicing, um, and you know, it's like saying letting everything go, and sometimes, and, and maybe I—I I even thought this, but it's been a while. It's like I'm letting go that the emotions won't be there. It's like sometimes, you know, if I'm talking in class and leaning, it's like. They wait, oh, I'm going to be able to get rid of my emotions. Like this letting go means emotions won't be there. And yet, no, they'll always be there. It's just not the grasping of them or, or pushing them away. And and I'm wondering if, if somehow in the, the teachings or there's something that talks more about that, that it's like you're not necessarily letting go of the emotion per se, because sometimes I think, for me, at first I felt like it's talking about that, and and I think I get that some people feel that's what will happen, and, you know, and it takes a while to the practice, but no, it's like, you're not getting rid of the emotion. No, you get it, you, you, you just, the reactivity, yeah, it's about, and, and because you hold the emotion in mindfulness, you know, you hold the emotion in mindfulness, and then there's always like some information, you know, at the core of the emotion. Uh, but not getting carried away by the energy of it, you know. Yeah, is there a, a teaching that talks more around that or a sutta that you I mean, know? The whole, really? Everything that talks about that, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, but I, I guess maybe in my mind I'm feeling like, you know, maybe this is just me. Mm-hmm. That it, it, it's a big, I, I think why it just seems to take a long time to get that, so I'm wondering if there's a teaching you know, or a story that has more clarity of showing that you're not getting rid of the emotion per se. Um, you know, maybe I'm not even making sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, sure. it you know, really, to help someone, you know, catch that. No, it's just a isn't it? The word emotion doesn't really come up in the suttas. The Buddha really speaks about anger, greed. You know, he speaks very specifically about... Spe- about in terms of the kalesis, as I said, she's just yeah. saying. So, I mean, I would say maybe the fourth, you know, speaking about the fourth foundation yeah, of mindfulness, you know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and how you, you know, how one does deal with the hindrances, for example, mm-hmm. you know, because it would be, it would fall under hindrances, yes, you know, yes. yeah. So how you deal with the hindrances? That's that's a way how you can speak about how to work with the emotions, you know. And, and it says it's often compared, you know, like uh, having a glass of muddy water, and if you don't stir it, it settles by itself, you know. That doesn't say you're going to get rid of the emotions, but you keep it contained, and you don't fiddle around with it, and then it's going to settle by itself. I mean, I think that's what it said, you know. And there is always like a, a, a core of information there, the emotion. And, and then to, to distill out that information... And, and not get carried away by the energy, which is 
very often, you know, like uh, distorted, you know, because it's if it's like a very strong anusaya, you know, which has been uh, cultivated over many, many years, you know, then and the asava is very strong, then, you know, the information... Uh, then the energy in that emotion can be very, very strong for for this one person, you know, totally disproportionate to what it means for most other people, you know, and then it's to act on that would be would be not wholesome, you know, but still it holds some information there. And then you get to know yourself, you know, and then you know whenever this thing happens, you know, whenever somebody does this thing, you know, I overreact because of my early childhood experience for, for, than somebody else doesn't, you know. Then you maybe afterwards you go and go to a friend and have a reality check, you know. How, you know, how did you see this, you know. And then you get to know yourself in that way and then, you know, and it's, it's, it, you can only learn from it if you don't suppress it. You can only learn from it if you hold it in that, uh, you know, like this glass of muddy water, there's some boundaries to the glass, you know, the water isn't all over the shop, but because it's held, it can settle, you know. Yeah. And basically the whole, the whole canon is about that, isn't it? It just doesn't, Use the word emotion, you know, in that, because it, it, he didn't speak like that about about it. Sankaras, yeah. Mental formations. Okay. I think I stopped there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.